What a great band. And I'm not exactly sure how they figured out what good songs to sing that coordinate with free. Good job. Holy Spirit must be in this place. A few weeks ago, Pastor Art asked me if I could preach today. And of course, my first reaction is, no, you can't be gone again. But then he said he had to do a wedding. And I know if it was my wedding, I would be very jealous to make sure that my favorite pastor was there. So I'm going to forgive him just a little bit for being gone. I asked him um, if he had a special theme he was starting to present. And he said, free. Okay, that's a rather broad topic. Um, I think once he saw my bewildered look, he clarified it by saying, it's open, you're free to talk about whatever you want. Of course, I couldn't get this word free out of my head. And so I started looking through the Bible for many passages that I could possibly talk on, and I found it a common theme, just about every passage would say something about how Christ has made us free. But one of the passages that really stuck with me was Galatians 5.1. Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure that you stay free and don't get tied up again in slavery. When did Christ truly set me free? They sang about it just a little while ago. Thank you very much, band. At the cross, with the cry, it is finished. You see, the basis for me being free, or you, is built on evil's reign in me ended, being finished. Today I want to take a look at an enacted parable given by Jesus at the beginning of that week that guaranteed my free status. If you want to turn to Mark 11. Well, I let you know this little story of a business executive who was deep in debt and he could see no way out. Creditors were closing in on him. He sat there on the park bench wondering, is there any way I can get out of this? Is anything available to save my business? How can I get out from under this overwhelming burden of debt? Suddenly, an old man appeared and said, I can see that there is something troubling you deeply. And after listening to the business executive's plot, plight, he said, I think I can help you out. Take this check and meet me here in one year and you can pay me back. And he disappeared almost as quickly as he had appeared. After he was gone, the business executive opened up the check and looked at it. It was for $500 thousand dollars. That's not the remarkable thing. It was signed by John D. Rockefeller. So this check was probably good. Um, his woes were over in a minute. He could, all he had to do was put that check in the bank and he could pay off his debts and be free and on his way to his good business. But as he sat there and thought about it, he thought, maybe what I best do is just put this check in my wall safe and work on my business. So with that check in the safe as his surety or guarantee that, you know, security blanket kind of thing, 
He went about making his business a better place. He made better business decisions. He um, made sound decisions as far as uh, sales, negotiated bigger and better sales, and within a short time, he was making a profit and his debt was disappearing. After the year was over, he took the check out of his safe and made his way back to the park bench. Sure enough, the dear old man appeared right on time. And just as he was handing the check over to him, a nurse came running up and said, I'm so glad I caught up to him, she cried. He keeps, I hope he's not been bothering you, he keeps disappearing from the rest home and claims to be John Rockefeller. The astonished executive sat down stunned. All year he had been wheeling and dealing because he had a million half a million dollars as security. The story in Mark 11 left Jesus' disciples stunned too. Mark's gospel portrays Jesus as a servant. However, as we come to chapter 11, we see a different picture of Jesus' servanthood than has been pictured before this event. His behavior is definitely not what we have come to expect from him. If you're there in Mark 11, you'll notice that the first 11 verses of that chapter are about the triumphal entry. It has Jesus announcing himself as the Messiah. Even this is out of his usual character of flying under the radar. As he rides into Jerusalem to retake possession of the temple, he is definitely noticed. The next morning is the part of the story that, of Mark 11 that we focus on today. He's on his way back into Jerusalem after he spent the night in Bethany. He needs breakfast, and he sees the answer to his need in a fig tree. Seeing a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if perhaps he could find anything on it. However, he felt, found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. Now, why would one look for figs on a tree when it wasn't even season for figs? Seems strange to me. You see, after harvest in the fall, fig trees spout, sprout little buds that remain undeveloped um, throughout the winter months. In early spring, these buds begin to swell as the tree produces leaves. These early or green figs should be on any tree with leaves and could be eaten even though they might not be fully mature or ripe. But now is when something troubling happens. It seems to be the angriest response of Jesus found in any of the Gospels to a simple fact that a fig tree had no fruit. Jesus makes a disturbing declaration in verse 14, says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Why is Jesus irrationally angry about a tree? Are you feeling okay, Jesus? This is really out of character for your, for your meek and mild self. The rest of the verses says to us, and the disciples were listening. You bet they were. They've never seen Jesus like this before. They are absolutely stunned, and so am I. But before we send Jesus off to a self-help anger management class, 
Let me share some information with you that may illuminate our interpretation of this event. As is typical in Jewish telling, storytelling, there is a lesson, and in the case of this fig tree, it represented Israel, chosen by God to be the light of the world, his light in the world, to clarify it more specifically. When Israel did not fulfill God's purpose, he spoke of them as, dry, as a dried up tree. Hosea 9.10 says, I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season, but they devoted themselves to shame. By verse 16, Hosea's prophecy declares that the nation would be stricken, dried up, their root would be dried up, and they would bear no fruit. This prophecy is well known by the disciples. And by the way, the disciples are the only ones there at this time. So this is a very um, important le or a, an education lesson specifically directed at his disciples. The fruitless fig tree sets forth the consequence that was about to fall on Jerusalem unless there was a major about face. His response is not about not having breakfast that morning. It's about religious hypocrisy. That was totally at odds with God's purpose and which, if unchecked, would bring about calamity on those he loved so much. Mark is using this sandwich story to aid in the interpretation of this odd parable. By interrupting the story of the fruit, fruitless fig tree and inserting the narration about Jesus cleansing the temple and then Mark coming back to talk more about the fig tree, he combines these stories to teach a more pointed lesson. You see, Jesus personified this tree, linking its outcome to his actions that he's going to do in the temple. Despite all that God had done for his people, they still produced no fruit. And just as the tree without fruit ended up withering, so their nation and temple would wither with not one stone left in another. Jesus knew, as did most of the Jews, that the prophecy pointing to the time allotted for your people and your holy city, given in Daniel, was about to expire. Thus, it was even more important to grab the attention of those that were on the path to ruin, to halt their direction and get them and us back on track. The filling of this sandwich parable has Jesus going to the temple. And if you agree that Jesus' response to the fruitless fig tree was strange, wait till you hear what happens next. Now we encounter a forceful, an unusual demonstration by Jesus. In verse 15, we're told Jesus entered the temple and drove out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the money changers' tables and the chairs of those dealing doves. He stopped everyone from carrying merchandise through the temple. When Jesus came to the temple that Monday, before the event that guaranteed my free status. He displayed his abhorrence of the sale of sacrificial animals conducted in the worship center by driving out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers 
so that the arguing and haggling over the price for these animals would no longer confuse or prevent sincere worship. And he set a post at the court. He stopped and, not, and not, would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the t- uh, temple. The shortcut of traffic flow that had evolved between the Mount of Olives and downtown Jerusalem through the temple court was plugged, ending, at least for a little while, the distraction from worship that should have been to God. I have to ask myself, could it be that there are distractions that get in my way of experience free and open communication with God when I come to worship? Is it time to overturn a few mind-blocking tables? Why is Jesus being so zealous, acting so violently, so out of character? The temple had become that barren fig tree. Outwardly, it appeared like an impressive religious structure, a holy place for God. But in reality, it had become a fruitless institution. The very place designed to reveal his grace and welcome his people had become sacrilegious, self-centered, business-like, and proud. The ultimate blasphemy is an empty, self-sufficient, hypocritical religious system with the appearance of piety, a fake religion. Jesus is adamant throughout the disciples that outward profession is not enough. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, but those who do God's will will enter the kingdom of heaven, according to Matthew 7. It's easy to be focused on appearances, but have no fruit, to become a whitewashed tomb full of dead man's bones. And this is the reason that Jesus is so full of wrath, a wrath directed at the misuse of the worship experience that hindered the children he loved so much from a true connection to the Father. I've seen many mothers, and fathers too, who are kind and gentle until something hurts their children. Then comes out that mean and wild side that is drastically protective of their children. So we see by verse 17, Jesus assuring his children the importance related to what he had just done by teaching and saying to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The only place that all nations could come and worship had been turned into a shady marketplace. By defending the right of everyone to come as they are and receive his free um, blessing, Jesus Jesus made it very clear that all seekers are welcome in his presence, even those who don't think or look exactly like me. Jesus also says that in this this place had become a cave of thieves. In verse 18, um, you can only imagine that the priests and scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Throughout history and still today, when religious leaders are exposed, they try to destroy those speaking for the values of God. And even though it might look like they prevail for a time, Jesus is our defender. 
Through this enacted parable, God is taking over. The priests and scribes would no longer represent him to the world. They were to be replaced by one who really cared about the people. It's a great and weighty task to be in the position of leadership in the kingdom of God. We are all called to represent him. The greater your influence, the stricter the accountability required. And whether you are a leader of two or three in your family or social setting, or of 100 or 500, God still looks for his character to show through. Jesus was acting in this unusual way that left everyone around him scratching their heads. However, he did it for a very good reason. He was defending his church, and he desires that we have a welcome mat out for all nations, all genders, all accents, all colors. He won't put up with the appearance of love. He defends and protects his children. And the thing I need to remember the most, and I hope you'll never forget, that Jesus is unwilling to lose any of his children. The hardest thing for us to grasp is that Pharisees and Sadducees are also his children. And I believe that's part of the biggest reason he acted like he did. He was unwilling to let go of any of his children, even those we call Pharisees and Sadducees. He had to make one more dynamic attempt to grab their attention and hope that he could redirect their downward spiral. So what happened to the fig tree? Just in case someone did not realize that the two enacted teachings were related, Mark points out that the following morning, on the way back to Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples passed that very fig tree that he had cursed the day before. And of course, it was Peter who had to make sure he pointed out the change that had happened in the tree. It had withered. Just like Hosea said, their root is dried up, they will produce no fruit. Now my self-righteous self has figured out at least 613 lessons that we can draw from this sandwich story, all the way from the pharisaical, I'm the one who knows how things should be done and you better do it that way, to clean up your life of sin, start producing fruit, and on and on and on. However, I think I should listen to what Jesus has pointed out in the next few verses. He says that we are to have faith in God, and if you have anything against anyone, forgive him. These are the fruit that Jesus was searching for in that fig tree that day. Jesus encourages his father to have or his followers, excuse me, to have faith in the Father. By utilizing a Jewish parable or proverb that describes how established faith can move mountains. I say to you, he says in verse 23, whoever says to this mountain, be moved and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that these things will be so, the things he has asked for will be done. Jesus was telling them and us of the need and value of faith and prayer for both religious leaders who still had the opportunity to be free and to his disciples as they were about to 
face the mountain of taking the good news to the world. Have you had any mountains move lately? The fight of faith has been the greatest struggle of my Christian experience for the last 20 plus years. It has amazed me how many mountains have actually moved. A huge mountain is tumbling and moving to the sea in the life of a friend of mine who I never thought would even look to be free from the evil that has inundated her. And now the possibility of a free life in Jesus is just on the horizon. I have seen the mountains of discontent, the mountains of long-established disgruntled attitudes thrown into the sea. Mountains are moving, and I pray that you will see your mountain disintegrate also. I wish I could give you a step-by-step process to follow so that that mountain that is blocking your free status would move, but I've come to realize that the steps can be somewhat personal and probably cannot be listed. Even though I say that, the first step is always Jesus. Jesus, prayer, Bible study, a humble heart will open the door of faith that moves your mountain. I'm going to date myself a bit now, but my fallback answer has always been something I heard from Tennessee Ernie Ford. Probably it was at least 60 years ago. If you have trouble with faith, he said, act as though you have it until there's an opportunity for Jesus to come through. I think it was his way of saying, lean on the faith of Jesus. I know from experience when my faith is smaller than that mustard seed, asking God for the faith of Jesus carries me through, develops my mustard seed into a mature fruit. I'm living proof that the faith of Jesus can crumble that mountain you face. As a matter of fact, we owe everything, including the availability of the faith of Jesus in our lives to God's free grace. Grace found in Jesus achieved our redemption, our regeneration, our heirship with Christ. And part of that inheritance is faith that moves mountains. True heroes of faith choose to believe God in spite of their doubts. We can spend a lifetime learning to trust God, and the more we trust him, the stronger our faith becomes. You have assurance of Jesus' faith, and when you surrender to the process that the Holy Spirit is using to grow your faith, also known as the good fight of faith, the grace he provides to you can then be passed on to others. As we learned in our Sabbath school lesson last week, we were studying Ephesians 6, we are to take up that armor of God, and one of those armor pieces is that shield of faith. Part of passing on to others is seen in this representation of the shields of faith. As some of you may know, Roman armies, that when they fought, they marched toward their enemies with shields overlapping each other. This made their fighting team stronger than a single warrior could be. See, if my shield of faith is linked to your shield of faith, it makes us stronger. 
And as I was thinking about that, I decided that I want to link my little bit of experienced faith with somebody's younger, vibrant faith because experience and vibrancy really grows my faith, or our faith. Um, I think that that kind of development, developed faith makes a defense line that is easier to move the mountains our church faces. You may have seen mountains of financial issues. You may see mountains of generation issues, maybe racial issues. Any other issue that you think might defeat this church, defeat cannot happen when we link our faith together with God. Woohoo! Time to do my happy dance. Sam, Sam Lee, you do my happy dance better than anybody I've known. I don't know if you're still here, but that kid inspires my happy dance, and it's time for it to come out. You see, we can watch that kind of overlapped faith move mountains. I'm also reminded that faith is not just a one-person element. Do you remember the story of David and Goliath or Jonathan and his armor-bearer? The armor-bearer carried the shield. Do you believe that if a member of God's family struggles at times with various problems that beat them down and discourage them, I can carry their shield of faith in Jesus for them to encourage a renewed growing of that mustard seed that matures in them too? So even in something so personal as faith, we are a team, and together, mountains will move. Look out, mountains, here we come. Now we get into that other part of grace that we can pass on to others, the one that's revealed in the other fruit that Jesus was looking for among the leaves of that famous fig tree. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you. Tough one. The reality is that the free status we are so desperate to realize can only be found by moving the mountain of unforgiveness into the sea. And my experience tells me that only is real when the gift of grace abounds in me. It took me a long time to get it, and truth be told, I'm still getting it. The first place to start, I believe, is found in one of our favorite books, Desire of Ages. Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours that we might receive the life which was his. With his stripes we are healed. Now I would like to take this quote just to a, another level beyond my personal salvation. You say, I find it very easy to understand that Jesus took the punishment for my sins so that I can now be treated as he deserves. But can I also understand that Jesus took the punishment of my enemy's sins 
so that now I can treat my enemy the way Jesus deserves. Because with his stripes, we are both healed. Perhaps before I go any further in this um, discussion about forgiveness, we should clarify the word enemy as I use it today. For some of us, that enemy looks more like a father, a mother, a sister, a brother, a former close friend. I believe if I took a poll right now, someone that was very close to you and I would be the one needing my forgiveness the most. You know, retaliation against my enemy will never bring me healing. I'm healed by the stripes of Jesus and not the stripes I want meted out on my enemy. Jesus' suffering for my sins can only bring me partial free status. I am made whole and totally reconciled, not just to Jesus, but to my enemy also, when I accept the fact that Jesus' grace led him to suffer for their sins too. An elder, I've told this story before, but um, I think it's worth repeating, so forgive me those of you who've heard it, but an elder in another church told me this. One Sabbath afternoon, I received a phone call from a mother of a child who I had corrected earlier that day at church. The girl had smarted off to me when I told her to stay out of her room. That was off limits. The mother told me, my daughter wants to tell you she's sorry. But before she gets on the phone, I wanted to ask you that when she says, I'm sorry, don't tell her it's okay. Just tell her she is forgiven. Wow. This mother really gets it. Forgiveness is not saying it's okay. So many of us are really slow to forgive because what happened is horrendous. And I can't just sweep it under the rug. And so it festers and becomes stinky. What we don't understand is that forgiveness is not saying it's okay. What happened is not okay. It is, un- it is saying that I understand Jesus suffered for your sins on the cross. I am healed by the stripes of Jesus, and so are you. Jesus does not have to hurt my enemy in order to heal me. He not only suffered for my sins, he suffered for the sins committed against me. Why do I need to take it out on my enemy when it's already been taken out on Jesus? Yeah, I hear you saying, but they made fun of me and humiliated me. Jesus was mocked and humiliated on the cross in their place. But they killed my son. They deserve to die or at least suffer. Jesus was killed and died because they killed your son. They abused me, or worse yet, they abused my daughter or son. They deserve to have abuse done to them. Jesus was sorely abused on the cross in front of the whole universe, including his own angels, on their behalf. Do you desire that free status? I guarantee that that lead mountain sitting at the bottom of your gut, put there by the weight of an unforgiving heart, will move out when you trust Jesus to heal you with his stripes 
and when you give the vengeance you would like inflicted on your enemy to Jesus. After all, he promises that vengeance is his. And you do know how that vengeance is completed, right? It is from a heart of love so deep that vengeance is meted out in the transformation of your enemy that resembles the transformation he is working out in you. I think I need to say that one more time. It is from a heart of love so deep that vengeance is meted out in the transformation of your enemy that resembles the transformation he is working out in you. Can you imagine the thrill Stephen will experience when he sees Paul walking down the street of gold toward him as they both make their way to the river of life? You see, Stephen could ask God to forgive his persecutors because his heart was so transformed by the grace, gracious gift of the Holy Spirit that his heart closely resembled God's heart so that he too desired his enemy to experience that same grace. I'm not saying this is easy. I've lived it. I've attempted to forgive someone that hurt me so bad, actually hurt my daughter so bad, that it's impossible. It's impossible in me, but it's be possible because of his stripes. It can happen for you. Jesus said that in Matthew 6, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. It's not so much that God will not as he is unable to. Because you, you see, when I forgive to um, forget, when I refuse to forgive my brother, what I am saying is I don't think Jesus' death on the cross was enough to pay for what was done to me. Well, guess what? If Jesus' death is not enough to pay for my enemy's sins, it ain't enough to pay for mine. I have just disqualified the cross as payment for sin, and therefore I pay my own sin, pay the consequence of my own sin. However, forgiveness is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Try forgiveness on this level. If you don't find a huge weight lifted from your shoulders and from your gut, when you come to the cross where your free status is guaranteed, I'll give you your money back. When hypocrisy, fake religion, self-righteousness are shattered by our faith in the one who overcame them, then the fruit that Jesus was searching for on that tree can mature on your leafy branches. Then is when the realization that the Son has made you free indeed becomes real. As we looked at this sandwich story today, we saw Jesus demonstrate a side that was passionately opposed to the slavery enforced by the religious system that was about to wither. A loving God made every appeal possible to gather all of his children to him and set them free. This is an even more important lesson to us living so close to the return of Jesus as God's church, 
current church. There are buku leaves, many leaves can be seen. We look good from the road, but can anyone see our fruit? My religious mask is firmly in place, and I know just how to play church. You better see that too. After all, I'm as religious as it gets. My leaves say I'm a fully matured spiritual person who can instruct you as to the proper method of doing church. Jesus says nonsense. I don't see any fruit. Jesus is looking for fruit scattered in all those leaves. He's looking for a faith that will move mountains, especially the mountain of unforgiveness. When the Holy Spirit lives in you, he possesses you to a point of reinventing your DNA to be faith-filled and forgiving. That is when you will experience the truth that his stripes have freed you. And if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed.